0: Great to be here. We're very grateful for the opportunity to come and fill in for a couple of Sundays uh, for Pastor Steve while he's out. I'm happy to come in and um, hope that I do justice to this platform, this wonderful facility that you guys have worked on expanding now and have turned into something so wonderful. Um, And uh, like Michelle said, I just got through with my master's, my, my master's of divinity, I'll be going into um, PhD studies in the fall at Asbury Seminary. And so we're kind of out of the frying pan into the fire, really. Uh, we know that it's been kind of a crazy season, and we're going to go into a season that's probably just as crazy, if not a little crazier. So we would appreciate your prayers uh, for our family and for that phase of our journey that we're entering into. And I'll be going into Old Testament studies. It's kind of been my favorite thing. And so I'm really excited to be able to drill down and get into research uh, with that. So I thought, what better way to uh, to celebrate that than with a sermon from the Old Testament? I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1, um, either on your physical copy or on your device, or uh, for... Short of those, also, you can just listen to the uh, listen to the words as they 're read out of the scriptures. so um, this is one of my favorite books of the Bible, and I feel like it uh, has a little bit of everything. Uh, I would recommend it to anyone if they want an exciting book of the Bible to read it 's about King David mostly so there 's this rise of the hero, uh, complete with giant slaying and epic battles, and there's also uh, there 's also a lot of tragedy in it with the rise. And then the downfall of King Saul, who was Israel's first king, involves a lot of palace intrigue and suspense as David is literally running for his life from Saul, continually outwitting him one step at a time while still honoring God and refusing to sin by killing Saul. And it tells of a very special time in Israel's history as God's people exit out of these dark times that they were in that you, that you see in the book of Judges. And they enter into the very beginnings, just the beginnings of this golden age when David and then his son Solomon reign over a united Israel. So, I also find it fascinating, as, as exciting as this book is, uh, I also find it fascinating that the special times in history, as we heard about just a moment ago, are still filled with a lot of ordinary people. Ordinary people who live ordinary lives and have, uh, in human terms, pretty pretty ordinary struggles that a lot of people face. Of course, depending on the struggle in question, even though maybe others have faced it too um, over time or in your circle even, when you're the one who's going through it, it can feel anything but ordinary to you. It can feel pretty desperate. It can feel crippling. And so in talking about all the wonderful things that I love about First Samuel, I certainly can't leave out the story of Hannah. Her story kicks off the whole book, and it's a story about an ordinary woman in the midst of an extraordinary time whose ordinary struggle will lead to the extraordinary work of God, though it certainly doesn't come easy for her. I'm going to be reading through through the course of this sermon through the entirety of chapter one, but not all in one shot. We'll be reading little bits at a time, and then I'll um, speak to them as we go. So starting with verse 1, there was a certain man from Ramatayim, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? So let's talk a little bit about Hannah's struggle that she's gone through. Since most of her story involves some very deep struggle and a very deep Pain which she has this struggle, as we just read in the passage, is barrenness. She's unable to have a baby, and no matter what time you live in, this is always a deep struggle for those who desire so strongly to have a child, and can't seem to. Hannah's barrenness and this need that she feels to have a child um, it involves the same pain that maybe some here have felt, maybe some that you know have felt, uh, but. Beyond that, it's also packed with a whole lot of extra cultural and societal baggage that kind of operates in the background. Some of it we catch some glimpses of, and some of it you have to dig for a little bit. Obviously, we've talked about the personal struggle that she's gone through. There's this deep longing and this deep pain that she can't she can't do anything about it. She cannot cause herself to be able to have a child. So there's that, but it goes a little deeper, and we do read about some of the relational struggles that Hannah deals with. Um, for one thing, Hannah's barrenness. Uh, we read that Elkanah, her husband, has two wives. If you if you read it uh, in in this one in this translation, it says one's name was Hannah, the other was Peninnah. But if you read it um, If you go into the Hebrew, it actually looks like it says the name of the one was Hannah and the name of the second was Peninnah. What a lot of people think is that Hannah's barrenness is actually the reason that Elkanah married a second wife. This is actually pretty common for the time in situations of barrenness. Although they actually think that not a lot of people, not a lot of men actually did take on second wives or third wives because I guess, to get down to the nuts and bolts of it. Economically, it's not that easy, I guess. You have to be pretty wealthy in that time to be able to do this. But it is possible. And a lot of times, it happens in situations of barrenness. Hannah might actually feel the pressure to have a son for Elkanah's sake. That's very likely, actually, because if Elkanah has a son... That means that his property that he received from his father, he can pass it on to his son. And so his lineage can continue. His name can continue for his family. And also his property, uh, which is a very important thing in Israelite society, that the property goes from, from one generation to the next and it's preserved in the clan. It's preserved in the tribe. All of these things, they lead to this pressure that Hannah feels to be able to have a son. And it's it's not happening. But we also read that Elkanah still loves her very deeply. And I guess you could also maybe ask, prefers? Maybe he prefers her a little bit? This is one of the side issues, although not really a side issue. It's a, it's a very prominent issue whenever we get into questions in the Old Testament about multiple wives in a household. There are always these questions of preference, always these questions of competition. But... Suffice that to say, Elkanah maybe even prefers Hannah, and he still loves her deeply as, you, as we read about these portions that, of the sacrifice that, that he gives to her when they're at the tabernacle. This, this deep love and maybe preference results in uh, poor treatment from the second wife, who can have children, Peninnah. Maybe um, maybe Peninnah sees Elkanah's strong attachment to Hannah. Maybe she finds herself envious about it. Uh, could be one of many reasons that she does this. But she takes every opportunity that she can, seemingly, especially around the time of sacrifice when they go to the tabernacle, is how we read it, to remind Hannah at every turn that she can't have children. So this causes a lot of tension and pain, obviously. Uh, this, this stress upon the marriage of Hannah and Elkanah. This putting pressure on their relationship too. It's putting a strain on it. Which we read, uh, as, as Elkanah, I guess in this moment of frustration and exasperation says, what, what's going on? Why can't you, why can't you be happy? I mean, yeah, you don't have a son, but you've got me, right? Okay, so, you know, I mean, Elkanah is, 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 is in a moment of, of frustration here, maybe kind of putting his foot in his mouth a little bit. I think what it communicates is there's a certain degree to which even Hannah's husband, the closest person to her, he just, there's something about this that he can't understand. There's certainly something about it that wife number two, Penina, does not understand. So there's relational pressure. But there's another level of pressure that I think works even further down under the surface in this text. And that's a big societal pressure that exists for Hannah. This pressure is immense. For the one thing, shame comes with being childless. There's this sense in the time that if you don't have children or if you can't have children, the question is, what did you do? What's wrong with you? What did you do that God is so angry with you that you can't have a child? That's a sense that a lot of people have in those days in cases of barrenness. So there's shame that comes with it. But there's also the question of how society operates. We talked a little bit about that with Elkanah, with lineage and inheritance and all of those things. But being without a son in Hannah's time is not just an inconvenience for her husband. It's an inconvenience for her, too, down the road. There is very little to no opportunity in Hannah's time for a woman to provide for herself. All the provision and the livelihood that a woman has comes through the dominant male figures in the household, basically. Society is not set up for women to provide for their own well-being. Uh, in the beginning of a woman's life, that means, obviously, when, when she's young, that means her father, or I suppose the head of the clan uh, that that she that she's a part of, uh, the dominant male figure who provides for her. But we'll say father for, for the sake of time. And then, eventually, the woman gets married, and then it's her husband. Her husband is the one who provides for her well-being. But then, people grow old, obviously. They're still a pretty young couple, they're, they're in the phase of trying to build a family, so they're still pretty young. But, if, but families do grow old, couples do grow old, and eventually, Elkana is going to die someday. Well, what happens then? Usually, in these cases, that responsibility of a dominant male figure who who provides for a woman that transfers from the husband to a grown son, the son will go on to provide for the for the now the widow in her old age and take care of her. This is how the society is set up um, there's I guess there's this question of how how we look at it as we see the fact of it versus maybe I guess the rightness of it. I don't know if I really think that it's a right thing, but just because just because we see it in the Scriptures doesn't mean necessarily that we have to say, well, therefore, we have to agree with it. I think it's just a testament to how God works in specific times, in specific cultures and situations, without necessarily, like, uprooting every part of it. It's the reality of things, and it's kind of what Hannah has to deal with. So, her provision goes from Father to husband, to son. But what if Hannah has no son? What if she has no son? So Hannah has a right to be anxious on multiple levels because she feels like there's this clock that's ticking. Because you're, if, a, if you're a woman in the ancient Near East, as we would call it, and you don't have a son, then you're in trouble, at least eventually. This is a reason why in the law we see so many laws about caring for orphans and for widows. Those who do not have husbands. Those who do not have fathers. There's a reason for it, and this is it. And then when family issues and the personal burden that Hannah feels of barrenness, when it's all added on top and when it's all put together, it can feel to Hannah like God has forgotten her. Her family doesn't seem to be able to help her. She honestly cannot do a thing about the situation and society does not have a space for her. What does Hannah do? Let's talk about what she does in the immediate case as we read further. Picking back up with verse 9. Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, "'How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine.' "'Not so, my lord,' Hannah replied. "'I am a woman who is deeply troubled. "'I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. "'Do not take your servant for a wicked woman.' I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. So in talking about Hannah's response, I think it's important to talk about what Hannah first does not do because she does have a lot of ways that she could react to her situation. And there are some things that she does not choose to do. She doesn't lash out, that's one thing. And she has some people that she could certainly lash out against. She could lash out against Paninna, wife number 2, and, you know, show her what for and tell her off. Um, she could express her frustration back at Elkana. And you know, to be fair, we don't we're probably not reading every single detail about these people's lives. We don't know exactly everything that happened, but the passage certainly portrays Hannah as very virtuous, very reserved but still aching inside. But she doesn't lash out about it. And also she doesn't fall into despair. She could do that. She could basically give up and say you know, I guess it's just done for me. Um, she could try to rely on the laws of society that kind of provide for widows when they become old. But nobody wants to do this. She doesn't despair. Let's talk instead about what Hannah actually does. And what she does, as we've read it in the passage, is she goes before God. She hands her desire over to God, basically. She's had this desire for a long time, but what we see her doing is taking that desire and handing it over to God, she approaches God about her need. She goes before the tabernacle. She stands there. She prays. And she hands over a couple of different things. She hands over control in the first place, which is not hard for her. This, this part's not hard because only God can help her. We've talked about how no one around her and not even she herself can help her in this. Only God can help her. So she hands over control by, by, by claiming that she hands it over. And then she also does something else. She doesn't just hand over control. She also hands over the results. They haven't happened yet. She doesn't have a son yet, but she's handing over the results in advance, basically. She's making a vow, saying, if I have this child, then this is not just going to be for me, basically, is what she's saying. She hands over the fruit of the need when it is met. Now, she doesn't simply... Ask. She is offering this child back to God. Now look at verse eleven again. Um, and it says starting with the quote, If you will only look on your servant's misery, remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Um, the razor bit. It kind of sounds a little bit like the law of the Nazarite from the book of Numbers, when someone would make a very special vow to God that they would not touch any alcohol or strong drink, they won't go near a dead body, and they won't cut their hair. All throughout the vow, it's a, it's a mark. It's a mark of being consecrated to God. And this sounds a lot like it, although it's not quite the same thing. But she's demonstrating... That her prayer is not just for her. She's essentially allowing God to use the child in the way that he wishes. And then she follows through. In so doing, when she does this, there's something that's happening here. She is transcending her circumstances. All of these difficulties, all of these situations that are orbiting her around her, she's choosing to kind of rise above them in that moment. So this personal anguish that she felt of not being able to have a child to hold in her arms. To her, it becomes this resolve instead to place the child into the arms of the Lord. And the child is not going to be some vengeful response to this rival wife who's tormenting her. Through the child, Hannah will lovingly respond, lovingly respond, to the God who's answered her prayer. And the child will not primarily be for her this means to future provision and societal acceptance. Though I do believe that as the child grows, as the son grows, even though he's serving in the temple, even though he's given, dedicated to God, I do believe that he'd be able to provide for her as, he, as she grows old. I do believe that. But still, This is not her first concern anymore. That's the point. None of the struggles are her first concern any longer. She is desperate enough that her first concern is now glorifying God when he meets this deep, internal need and desire that Hannah has for a son. And then she walks away with expectation. She has a little bit of help from Eli, the priest, though not initially. I mean... Um, obviously, Eli is another case of someone who just doesn't understand what's going on inside Hannah's, uh, inside Hannah's heart. Um, I mean, I suppose you could you could chalk it up to his eyesight. He's kind of getting old, as you'll read later in the book, and his eyesight's kind of going, so he doesn't really know what's going on. But as soon as he does understand, then he gives Hannah this blessing, and this apparently really means something to her. There's power in that office in that ministerial office. And she takes that seriously and she walks away without the same the same level of desperation she had because she has this confidence that she's walking away having having done something important and having received an important blessing. So that's Hannah's response there in the immediate. And as we can see in what I'm calling Hannah's redemption, it turns out very positively for her. Not to say that every time we pray that it's going to turn out exactly the way that we want. A lot of times God says no and sometimes we don't always know why. But in this case, the Lord actually says yes to her prayer. She becomes pregnant and she bears a son. I can I can only envision in a tiny little drop, a small glimpse of how overjoyed she must have been and then she carries out her vow to the Lord. She doesn't change her mind. Sometimes when the good times hit, we suddenly become forgetful and we remember the gift, but not the giver. But Hannah doesn't do that. She doesn't change her mind about this dedication that she was going to do uh, now that she has what she wants. When the child's ready, he is brought to the tabernacle and he is presented to Eli the same person who blessed Hannah's desire. She brings the child back along with the appropriate sacrifices and everything, and there's this whole ritual. And her testimony and her devotion, which I will now read because I haven't yet, in verse 19, is enough to cause Eli to drop to the ground in worship. Early the next morning, they arose and they worshiped before the Lord. They went back to their home at Ramah. This is before the child is born. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Delkana told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only make the Lord, only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you, praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped, that is, Eli worshipped the Lord there. So the Lord answers and brings blessing Upon her life in the form of this child, and she carries out her vow. So the issue with a sermon like this is that it can quickly turn into a message about how to ask for things from God in the right way. And Hannah's request for a son is like the—it's like the major part of the passage. And we all have Hannah-type moments and Hannah-type struggles. Some dealing with this very same issue even, of the inability to have a child. And there's certainly a place for discussing how someone should or how someone shouldn't go about prayer when it comes to requesting something from God. There's a, there's a space for that. But Hannah's story is about much more than that. It's in there, but it's about a lot more. Instead, what I see in Hannah and what I would like to emphasize today beyond this request to the Lord that she makes, is a life, as I see it, which is fully dedicated to God. Both in the great anguish that she has in her unmet needs, and in the blessing which God's provision brings into her life. So, in the good times and in the bad times, both, she lives her life in dedication to the Lord. And that, right there, that's a model for how we ought to live our lives. When I say dedication, I don't mean like uh in the sense of someone saying, yeah, he's a really dedicated hunter. He's really interested in doing it and he's and he and he goes out and hunts all the time. He's really dedicated to this. Now I mean dedicated in the sense of something which is handed over to God. God, this is yours. That's the kind of dedication I'm talking about. Not just you really like God or you're really interested in knowing about God. So we see several elements in the passage, and I believe I'm running short on time. So um, we see several elements here that speak to this dedication that Hannah has, demonstrate some ideas about a life that's characterized by dedication to God that we can operate upon today. So I want to visit upon those things um, because they're still true for us, even regardless of our different circumstances. We're all unique, but... All of these things, I believe, as we see in the passage, are still true for us regardless. The first one I offer to you, the first one I offer that we see from Hannah is to set yourself before the Lord. To enter into the mindset of being at the feet of the Lord. And so what I mean by this is that we have to seek to cultivate, to, to, to develop up this life of fellowship and closeness to God. Now, Hannah is at the place of worship that God established for, for Israel. And so at the time, he says, I'm going to dwell in a tent. My presence will be there. And when you come to worship, that's where you go. So obviously that's a little different for us. We don't go to any one place. I mean, we come here to church to worship together, but the presence of God is accessible to us through God's presence in us, right? So this fellowship, this deep Connection to God is something that we cultivate within our lives on the individual level as well as together. So the Lord is, so for, so like in the case of Hannah, uh, Hannah sets herself before the Lord at this time of her greatest distress, and here's the other thing though, at the time of her fullest joy. The Lord is the one that she turns to and returns to. And to me, that feels kind of like this prototype image you know hers is the model before the tabernacle in the presence of god and we can follow that even though it looks different for us today now it's when we set our, ourselves before him in this way when we practice setting ourselves before him in the hard times on the one hand in the hard times that we see our circumstances in perspective our earthly struggles that we go through they they become small when they're set beside eternity itself, when they're set beside the divine, but at the same time, we also see that God still cares about our struggles, and he still cares about our needs. There's this double action going on where we see how small our troubles are when compared to God, but we also see that God doesn't write them off for that reason. He is light. He brings clarity. He brings comfort when things are dark. But also when we set ourselves before him in the times of blessing, when we, when we work to establish deep fellowship and communion with God, we remember, we honor the source of the blessing that's come into our life. We're reminded that all of our needs are met in God. All of them. Even the ones we don't recognize. The breath that you just took. The beating of your heart including all the other stuff too that, that God brings that we do see and we do pay attention to. We remember that he is the source of all of our needs and he is the one who blesses all of them. Our prayers are, so in talking about this setting ourselves before God, our prayers are way more about relationship and about communion than they are about receiving something from God. And so setting ourselves before him, it properly orients us into that attitude. So a second thing we see Hannah do is that she brings her needs before him and then she glorifies and expresses thanksgiving to God. Okay, that that should be simple, right? We do it all the time. uh, And to be sure, I think sometimes we fall into the trap like I was talking about just a minute ago of our prayers being mostly about asking things from God. I've been guilty of it before, and that's, that's one extreme that prayer can go to. But there's also another extreme, kind of on the other end, in which a person might be afraid to ask for something at all from God. Sometimes, and that's happened to me as well, as if it's not, as if that thing is not important enough. A life dedicated to God, characterized by that dedication, is a life in which you come before him as a child comes before a father because he is your father and because he delights in your coming to him. Think about that. He delights in your coming before him. And it's a coming before him and asking, making these needs known, not in despair, like Hannah, not with despair. It'd be a temptation to say that, you know, we should come to prayer uh, to God uh, come to God with specificity in our prayers, you know? Know exactly what it is as you're, as you're coming to God in prayer. Um, but I kind of trade that option, which I think can sound a little too demanding at times, and I go with the idea that we need to come to God in prayer in honesty. Because honesty includes what you need, and God already knows what you need. So don't, don't shy away from it but also come honestly enough to realize that sometimes you have some desires that maybe God, God's not going to want to bless that. There are sometimes where our desires have to be conformed to God's will, and they aren't yet. So there's an honesty that we have to come to in coming to God when we bring our needs before him. Because God knows your needs and he cares deeply for you. And when God powerfully meets a need in your life, and bring glory to him for what he's done, just as Hannah does. She doesn't forget about God's goodness. She doesn't forget to fulfill her vow. And also, she doesn't forget to tell the story because this blessing has been amazing enough and that her connection to God has been amazing enough that she has to tell someone. And this is where she comes and tells Eli everything that happened. It's an amazing enough story that Eli falls to the ground in worship. But that wouldn't have happened if Hannah had decided not to say anything about it. So when God meets a need in your life, tell your story. Tell your testimony because it's going to go further than you. It's going to bless others as well. And the last one that I would, um, the last one that I would bring our attention to in the text is the vow and the follow-through. So Hannah, as we talked about, turned this long-desired child that she was asking for into this perpetually dedicated offering to God. And the child lived and served in the tabernacle, bringing glory to God in that way. So I said a moment ago that that blessing of God is going to go further than you. And it really, really does. Because if you're familiar with 1 Samuel, or if you go on and read further in it, if you're not familiar, this child, whose name is Samuel, does not is not any ordinary child. This child goes on to... Be a powerful prophet of God. The, the prophetic voice in Israel, which before this time is rare. Suddenly, it comes bursting back onto the scene. Samuel has this powerful ministry. He unites Israel spiritually against their enemies, against idolatry. It's a very powerful ministry. And it's that same Samuel who is going to anoint first King Saul, and then he anoints King David. So Samuel is the beginning. He's like the opening of the door into this era of kingship and royalty that takes place in Israel, a golden age. And that happens because Hannah is willing to dedicate her desires over to God. She opens up an avenue into God's great blessing for Israel, and she never even realizes it. Our lives and the blessings of God in our lives are meant to move beyond us and outward. In this way, it is a mark of a life dedicated to God when even the deepest desires of our hearts, those things within us that we want the most are in a sense, they're sanctified for his purposes, turned over to him. So my questions for you are, do you have a deep, unmet, desire within your soul of some kind. On the other hand, has God answered you in a powerful way concerning something? On both accounts, the reality uh, of that answer is most certainly yes. Even if you haven't really thought about it, there's something within you that still remains to be complete. There's something within you that God is still wanting to do in your life And there are also a lot of amazing things that he has done in your life. So whether it's about recognizing that or knowing it now, we all have deep unmet needs that only God can meet. The other question is, how might you take that desire or how might you take that blessing of God, that answer of God, how can you take those things and dedicate it to him? Give it over to him. So it isn't, just, it isn't just the end. It doesn't just end with you, but it'll mean something for his kingdom. I invite you to think on that this week as we head out from service today. It makes me wonder for me and for you and for everyone, what might God be ready to do through any one of us who's willing not simply to ask something from God, but who's willing to surrender themselves and their desire over to him. Because our desires are best put into the hands of God. When that happens, God will show himself to be the grandest, truest desire that any of us can pursue. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we we desire you as we sang today, there's nothing worth more than your presence. We long for the eyes of our hearts to be opened and to see you for who you are, see you in your majesty, and to have deep fellowship with you. Is what you've designed us for. And Lord, we also have so much within us, so much around us, that swirls and tumbles like ocean waves pressing at us, pulling at us. And you know. You're not unaware of what we go through. You know it better than us. And so we look within ourselves this morning, Lord. We take a moment. We look within ourselves. We see the desires of our heart. We look for them. And we acknowledge that they're best given over to you. There are things which only you can do. There are things over which we have no control. And yet they are still so important. And so we hand them to you this morning. We hand them to you knowing your care, knowing your provision, knowing your wisdom. We pray that as we seek to discern what's in our lives, we seek to discern what those things are that we desire the most, we seek your wisdom as you would help us in our prayer, in our time with you to understand what it is about our desires that maybe needs to change, what it is about our desires that maybe needs to go away. And in any case, everything about our desires that we have to be ready to hand over to you both so that you could answer and pour blessing into our lives, but even more so, so that our lives, the entirety of our lives, can be characterized by dedication to you. We give ourselves to you this morning. We hand ourselves over, knowing that you are you are able, knowing that you are strong, knowing that our lives rooted in you, founded upon you, is the one thing that we could hope for the most in this world now as it is and in the life to come. We thank you for your presence and for your provision, for your blessing and for your great love, which goes so deep and so wide. Father, it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and in the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray to you this morning. Amen.